Welcome to The Trophy Life, the podcast that uncovers the competitive spirit that drives us. This week on The Trophy Life, we welcome Jennifer Kirk. Jennifer is a former American competitive figure skater. She was the 2000 World Junior Champion and the 2002 Four Continents Champion. Jennifer retired from competitive figure skating in 2005 and pursued an academic career. She is a graduate of the prestigious Columbia University School of Social Work and a licensed therapist and coach. She's dedicated to helping others reach their full potential and learning skills that they need to thrive. She utilizes a person-centered, strength-based approach and believes every individual is unique and 100% capable of achieving their goals. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I work with a lot of skaters and coaches, former skaters as well. Well, tell me a little bit about your work first. What, you know, is the kinds of sessions that you offer, are they like three sessions? Are they, you know, like, because coaching versus long-term, like, um, uh, psychoanalysis, sometimes that can go on forever. But sometimes coaching is uh, determined like three months, six months. So tell us a little bit. Yeah, it really depends on the individual and their needs. So we'll meet for a session, identify goals. And then sometimes it'll be a few months. Sometimes it'll be a month, a session here or there. Or other clients, they want to continue to come back for coaching throughout their career. So it's really individualized. But yes, definitely different than the clients that I work with when it's psychotherapy and it's uh, treating a mental illness. And that's more going to be potentially lifelong or more long-term. Right. The, the thing I love about the kind of coaching that you do is kind of like accountability. Yes. You know, you, you agree, you partnership on goals, and then you are that, that Jiminy Cricket, you know, so yeah. to speak, that keeps someone accountable. And it it kind of gives them that self-regulation to become self-accountable. Is that right? Yes. And one of the things that I think is a benefit of being a therapist and a coach, I always try to help empower the clients to realize that whether it's in coaching or therapy, that they're the expert. So I never want to feel like I'm the expert who has all the answers and that they don't have the answers. Answer. So it's helping them see that they know themselves right. a lot better than most of us actually realize. So while I'm holding them accountable, it's always client driven. So when when your clients come to you and they are stuck, because so many of us in this pandemic mm-hmm. feel one, you know, we are up and we are down. Like one day we we think, oh, today's the day I'm going to go through all of those photo albums and I'm going to clean my basement and I'm going to reconstruct my office. And then the next day we wake up and it's 1130 in the morning. We don't want to get out of bed. <laughs> How can we overcome some of those things? What are some of those habit training techniques that you share with your clients? So the first thing that I notice, which is generally universal, is we're all really hard on ourselves. Mm. So it's getting a client to see how that judgment may not be serving them. So in the example that you gave, I had all of these goals set out for today. I wanted to go through my photo album and I sat on the couch and watched Netflix. Mm -hmm. So the first thought that usually pops into our mind is I'm lazy. We have all this judgment that we Mm -hmm. love onto it. I'm not going to get, and then these beliefs come in. I'm not somebody who completes 
goals that I have for myself. And then it's, well, I didn't complete that goal two weeks ago. And then this is more and more evidence. So it's starting with self-compassion and practicing that, that what would you say to a friend in this situation and how would you help them? How would you speak to them? And then it's also helping clients see that whatever qualities that we think we want to work on that, oh, maybe it is, I'm not as productive as I want to be. Mm. It's helping them to see how is it actually a positive. So it's flipping what we tend to label as a weak trade or something that we're trying to change in ourselves. Mm. How does that actually help you? How is that benefiting you? And then let's just work with it a little bit. Mm -hmm. How could we make some changes here or there so that the goal is never to shame or try to get rid of parts of yourself, but it's to turn what you may have labeled as a weakness into something that is actually a strength. I love the idea you said self-compassion because interesting enough, when my kids were growing up and I was was really um, mindful of their language and they were two words that were not permitted in my house and they're not what you think they are, that was hate and stupid. They were two words that I didn't, that was not allowed. Um, and I mean, it may sound peculiar, but I knew at that time that repeating those words, they become very comfortable, but your brain understands exactly yes. how harsh they are and, and how raw those um, words can be and how permanent they can be. Um, and mm-hmm. I didn't want, I knew if they expressed them verbally, that it would be super comfortable for them to express them with their self-talk. So when those mm-hmm. words became more aware, and it wasn't so much that I found them offensive, I found them destructive. And I it, now, even my kids, you know, are in their 20s, and they'll say, like, I hate, and I'll, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, sorry. You know, it's almost like they dropped <laughs> like an that. F-bomb or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I, that's so stupid. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. And they're still apologizing, mm-hmm. but... It is so ultra, if you have that awareness, you're able to do that self-correction with your self-talk. Yeah, so I- Yes, yeah, and if you even say the word hate or stupid, Mm -hmm. the emotion that you can try to have a smile on your face and say hate, but how do you feel inside? So it's also, like you said, connecting, how am I actually feeling when I'm thinking these thoughts or saying these things about myself? So the first step is always that awareness and being able to check in what have I been thinking about myself today? And we have the same loop of, you know, a f- couple hundred thoughts every single day that something like, I think it's 90% of our thoughts are just repeats from the day before. Yeah. So it's getting in touch with what do I actually say all day yeah, long in my, my head loop. about myself? Yeah. yeah. What is my yeah. loop? And let's just try to change one thought today. And then yes. one thought, you know, next yeah. week and see yeah. how much of a difference that can make. When I, I did a commercial years ago about, I think it's like 58,600 thoughts average, right? That we get a day, right? So close to 60,000. And I'd say at least one of them has to be a really good idea. So you have to wake up with that idea of the potential of greatness at the Mm -hmm. threshold. You're at the threshold of greatness every day because you only need one out of 60,000 to make sense, right? Yes. And that ties back into what you said earlier about accountability. So it's, that's a choice. We don't wake up, you know, you wake up and it's cold, it's a snowstorm or you're, it's the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Automatically your, your brain goes to all of the things that could potentially be roadblocks for a good day. So it's making that choice of, Mm -hmm. well, no, I'm going to choose to look for things that are working right now because they're just as 
prevalent is all of the things that may not be working. Yeah. You know, even with the self-compassion, what I, when my kids were away, whether it was at college or like when Adam was traveling and I would hear like how hard they were on themselves and I felt maybe overcritical. I would send them a picture of them when they were like four or five. Mm -hmm. And I would say, how would you talk to this guy? And it was really like, I remember at one point in Adam's career, I sent him a picture of him at his first like Keystone State Games. I think he was like <laughs> 10 or 11 years old, right? And um, and I said, don't you remember like that kid's dream was to mm-hmm. maybe be on TV one day? And I mean, look at where you're at, you know? So yeah. Take it down. Yeah. And or, or with my other kids, I would send them a picture of um them and that i call that my smile file Mm because i take i look at them when i'm like furious that i can't get in touch with someone like you know my daughter's in california there's a time difference and i was so worried because the whole campus was very ill in february and they shut it down but this is before um covid was rampant or at least that we we, it wasn't disclosed how far uh far ahead we were with the infection and I was trying she was sick and you know when you're not answering your phone you have it on I don't know what it is but I think if you're under the age of 35 you don't have any sound on your phone (laughs) I think it's a pledge that you take at the Verizon office or something because they're like oh my phone was on silence I'm like why do you have a phone if you if it's not gonna ring in a way that you can yell yeah so yeah I think in those moments I would get over trying to get angry with them by quickly scrolling through what I call my my smile file Mm because it puts me in check and it reminds me like truly how grateful they are, truly how much appreciation they show and how loving they are to each other. So I remind myself like nobody's doing this to you on purpose, Kelly, you know? And it sounds what you did there. And I don't know if there was a conscious awareness. It's I get to choose how long I stay angry. So often we think the emotion controls us. So I'm angry. And until my daughter calls me back, then I'll give myself permission to feel relief and to feel happy or satisfied. What you did is I'm angry. I want to feel better. What can I do that Right. You are, that's that empowerment piece of right. being able to control my emotions. Right. And you're not going to give someone else permission to tell you when you can stop being angry. You know, like yeah. the guy in the office that puts you down in front of people and then all of a sudden he brings you back a muffin from Panera Bread <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, thank you. And yeah. there's like a relief, like, oh, he likes me. He's not mad at me. So I'm not, I don't have to be mad at him. You're right. That's so powerful that we um, are accountable for our ups and our downs, like we control that. Yeah. And sometimes people can hear that as dismissive or um, can flip it a bit and say, well, are you shaming me to say that it can't be my fault that I'm feeling angry right now? Look at what they did. And yes, their behavior, that guy who is, you know, in the office, that does not say that what he did was right, but it gives you that piece of empowerment where I'm not powerless. He's not in charge of me. I don't have to wait for him to do anything to feel great Right. right now. Yeah. Or, you know, that's on him. Yes. Like I can reflect that, you know, it can Mm -hmm. be off of me. I can observe it and remember it. I don't have to feel it. And I I would say to people too that, because you get to like when someone turns, one day you'll find this out as you start getting older. (laughs) 
that they say like once you're 40 you stop caring what people think and i th i think it was somewhere in my 40s that i and i had to come to the the acceptance that i didn't stop caring what they thought i stopped feeling what they thought so i still i because i think it's important that you do get a pulse on yes. what you're putting out because sometimes we you know, we we don't understand the way we are expressing things because we get tied up in our emotions, right? Yes. So, um, but it's okay to, you know, care but not feel. Right, right. And we're human. We love. It. it would be scary if we didn't care because then you think about the flip side of, well, then I'm just doing whatever I want. I don't care about anybody, and there's so much potential that you could hurt somebody if you're not thinking about their feelings or caring about what they think. So exactly what you said is I am aware of what they think mm -hmm. and I care, but I don't need to sit in that for any longer than I want to. Right. You know, I follow your Instagram account because it's so powerful. Give me your Instagram so everybody can follow It's that. Jenny Kirk, LMSW. Okay. And um, I follow it because it's so positive and I love to um, follow like-minded um, you know, and I even said before that because I follow you, I felt like I had this like we were friends, and truly we haven't been formally because I think I think I was with um, there were at a nationals when they used to have those Tom Collins. Events. Yes, yeah, and the I, parties. Yes, and I think I was there, um, and. There were people that I would like Amber Corwin and, da mm -hmm. and Derek Dalmar and yeah. that whole. I think you were all kind of, of together. That generation, yes. Yeah. And um, uh, I forget her name um, from Detroit. Um, uh, she was very lovely. Um, I think she was an ice dancer, um, blonde. Um, I forget her name, but. But anyway, she was lovely. And I think you were all together. And um, I forget who I knew that was in that group. And we all said hello and something. And then I just, you know, I, I used to watch you sometimes. In the very beginning, you had your podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and I would watch. You had like some Sandra Bezik and like yeah. Dick. I th did you have Dick Button? I think We did. Have yeah. And um, so I used to watch that. And then... Um, I think, I don't know you, your travels. I think that's when I started like following you heavily on Instagram. <laughs> and I know I'm like a stalker, right? And But it was so positive and I liked that. It mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, you were really kind of sharing your journey, but you were sharing like your your optimal journey. You mm -hmm. know, you were, you were showing slices of um, the best part and I and the move, I follow. I feel like this is episode one. I followed you <laughs> move, and then I followed you. I think you went to Missouri or something. Right? Yes, yeah, I lived there then, for a year. Yeah, and then you did like some. It was like a cross country because I drive. I drive a lot. You okay. know, when I was working on the road, obviously there is uh -huh. that kind of work right now. But I was on the road a lot, so I would do. Um, you know, when I was in Detroit or in Canada, I would drive out to visit him. I had a son in law school mm -hmm. out in Indiana. I would drive out there, mm -hmm. um, dro drove down to Florida a few times. Like, so I'm driving a lot and I was following your, you know, uh -huh. to maximize your alertness and everything. And then you were teaching synchro, right? Yes. In Missouri. Yeah. Yes. That's a new experience. 
<laughs> yes. And then I remember your decorating ideas. It, yes. I mean, they were just to happen. You would just yeah. happen to have things on there that I was interested in. You were oh, like trying oh to like go to Target and make <laughs> a little office and it was yeah. just very cute. And um, then you moved again. So yes. um, uh, I never, I, I think I missed an episode because when you were in, I think it was Idaho, like the before the Missouri trip, uh, okay. there was a man in the gym. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's so funny. So I'm back in Idaho now. Okay. And I was running when I first moved back here on the green belt and I saw him. <laughs> and I thought I was running your male department. Yeah, he was married, sadly. Oh, but. well, his loss. His loss. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. I know. But you're like, you are in that mindset of a Hallmark movie because you're <gasps> upbeat. And I'm sure there's a lot of like drama and angst behind the scenes. But you deal with it and you come out with like a new top and you, you're this <laughs> thing is so, I, you know what? I really love to see that you challenge yourself yes. and you just keep trying. And I, I just think that that is part of, you know, when parents say to me about like taking Zoom ballet or mm -hmm. they're doing remote or they're having like group lessons and things like that, I'll say, it's really the habits that they're training you know the habit of becoming excellent not at winning a prize no, no. and that's what it's... i see you demonstrate so tell me some of that like what drives you yeah so that's everything that i share on mm -hmm. my story whatever it is mm -hmm. it's that's my goal is yeah. showing it's i think sometimes we live in this curated particularly on instagram social yeah. media culture where well okay you have to hide all of, if it's a challenge and i could yeah. potentially could get messy or i could be faced with insecurity or self-doubt then i don't want anything to do with it and particularly in sports a lot of the skaters that i work with there's a mentality of i'm great or i'm horrible based on my results yeah. so if it's something where i'm going to a competition I'm so afraid of handling the disappointment or potentially letting myself down because right. my identity is so tied to that end result mm -hmm. that I'm just paralyzed with fear. I don't want to try. So what I've really worked on in my own personal life and what I hope to share on Instagram is let's try to make a shirt. It could be completely horrible. I have no idea how to sell, but let's keep a positive mindset. Look for what is working and learn from the lessons and really yeah. practice the potential for disappointment. And yeah. the same thing with driving across the country all right, can I do this next two hours? Well, how are we going to approach it? Let's problem solve what our mindset could be to make this a fun experience. Mm -hmm. And you learn that in that process, mm -hmm. those tools are yours. So right. whatever life throws at you, oh, I know I'm equipped to handle that. Right. And then do, do you follow Covey? Like the seven habits? I oh, I'd be, oh, Stephen Covey. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've read the book. Yeah. And start at the end and work back. You know, mm -hmm. what, where do you want to end up? Okay, let's take it back. Like you want to get to California, then you don't have to go from where you're at, you know, filling each moment, start mm -hmm. at the back and then ch put it in chunks, right? Yeah, and I think so often too, when we're faced with a goal, we think of that ideal self who's accomplished the goal. And you look at yourself today and think, well, I don't know how to do that yet. Right. So I can't even start because until I get all of these things perfect or I become that person, yeah. you become the person by working towards the goal. So yeah. that's all good. That person will show up and that's you. And what qualities can you use to just get to the next step and then the next step? 
keep you motivated. When you were little, who were um, your skating role models? Who were you looking up to at that point? Yeah, so I grew up in Boston, right. and I was actually listening to Nick's interview, um, mm-hmm. your last episode, and just he was talking about skating at Nationals in 1994, mm-hmm. and it sounds like you and I got really interested in the sport at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it was right around the time of the 1994 Nationals, and we had a family friend who was also close with the Kerrigans. So I grew up in the sport when every all of these skaters were on TV every single weekend and not as much as it is now, but it really felt like these skaters were coming into your homes and, and you knew those personalities. Um, and definitely Nancy and Paul were big right. for me when I was a kid. Yeah. I'm, I've met Nancy a few times. I don't know her, but Paul and I have had conversations because I did mm-hmm. a few seminars with his mom, who's amazing. Yes. Um, but he's such a good person. You know, he's such a lovely man. And um, I know he's up at Lake Placid now. But that his, um, he would always do, well, from what I can remember, and I'm certainly not, a, you know, an expert at skating. But uh-huh. I remember he would do epic programs. Like yes. he did, a, you know, Apollo, was it Apollo 11 or Apollo 13 or? Um, Apollo 13, yeah. 13. And he did JFK or RFK or what? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, I'm showing my my um, loose knowledge of skating, but he would always do these amazing like movie, um, like the you know iconic programs that were um, I just loved. Yeah, I just loved. And but it doesn't it seem like every few years there's a different um, like capital city of skating and i think boston in that era was like the capital city and then i think um delaware happened Mm -hmm. to have some shine for a while because kimmy and johnny were coming out Mm -hmm. of there um detroit and toronto california or colorado like broadmoor Mm -hmm. always has um a bunch so there seems to be a few of those capital cities but um, yeah, and the way that Nick was talking about how there really was such a um, a different, like a, almost like a royalty with yes. skating that yes. people they didn't have like tight security because people just didn't do that. It was so polite. Mm-hmm. There was it was a well mannered. There was a lot of etiquette that was mm-hmm. um, invisibly enforced because people understood that you didn't approach the athletes or their families and things like that. And he talked about being in the arena that now you, yeah. that you must've been at national. Wait, you were at national. I was nine. So yeah. I just oh, started. No. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. 2004. I mean, that oh, was 1994. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, no, that was, I had just started skating, I think like two months before the attack. And mm-hmm. so it was a, Great time to start because suddenly it was on, you know, the news yeah. every night. And Nancy lived just, you know, thirty minutes away from our family home, so it was exciting, but you know, not in the best way, but then in a better right. way. That's effects. right. That's right. No, of course you would not be in Detroit when you were four. Um, I got my fours mixed up, ninety four and two thousand four, because <laughs> I know that you were at nationals in two thousand four. Yeah. Um, now, when you were competing, were you a person that liked to watch the other skaters or did you like go out and do your business and get away? I had my first coach, I remember at my first competition, just 
instilled in me, don't watch anybody else. She'd actually like turn my back mm-hmm. to the ice, even mm-hmm. as the last skater was bowing and then would turn me forward. So I, at first I didn't really understand it or she would take mm-hmm. me to a different locker room. So I couldn't yeah. hear any, but I think she was a little bit on the extreme of, you know, don't want, didn't want anything to freak me out, yeah. but I would never watch my competitors. And even after I would skate. And then if there were, you know, 10 more skaters to go or whatnot in international, I didn't like watching men because I would find myself hoping that they'd all fall. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. like the way that they like felt that, that I'm like, yeah, I'm rooting against this person. And then it got, yeah, maybe you feel really not yeah. so great. So I would just leave the arena and then I'd have somebody call me when the results were up. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of skaters are like that, you know, unless yeah. you're compelled to stay because of doping and things like that. Mm-hmm. that yeah. um, now, what is your impression with skating right now with mega quads and quad combinations and young girls, you know, is it, do you, is it going in the right direction? Is it going in more of a super athletic direction? Like, is there any hope from those days where you know, Michelle um, Kwan and you and Sasha and um, Karen Kadavy and Jill Trenery, you would compete and then you would have these fabulous show programs and you, you know, you, um, it doesn't seem like, it seems like everybody has, especially the young girls, the, like the little Russian girls are so incredibly talented, but their yeah. career is like two years. Right, right. And, and you know, I know this argument has been going on in skating for yeah. almost the past decade, past five years of, well, what does the sport need in North America? And some people will say, well, we need another scandal or another attack. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it was necessarily, yes, what happened in 1994 brought skating to our televisions, that right. it was, but what really made it stick throughout that next decade was we found love with the personalities. And because yeah. skaters really, unlike any other sport, in my opinion, you see who somebody is when they're on the ice, that you see so much of who they are as a person. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that the sport is right now, with all of the technical demands and the IJS and these um, young skaters who may not know who they are. I didn't know who I was at 13 or my personality, parts of my personality. So when you arrive on the scene at 13, 14, and then you leave by 16, we don't have the opportunity to get to know the athletes and to really fall in love with them and to become invested. Mm -hmm. So I think, I don't think it's done great things for this, but it's incredibly impressive what the human body can do and what we're seeing in terms of the technical content, but it's missing that emotional where we connect Mm -hmm. to that individual that I think we had in the nineties. You know, it is amazing though, that these young girls are doing quad lutzes. Like I just saw a quad lutz with their arms over her head. The Rippon lutz, but in a quad. Yeah, (laughs) Rippon lutz. And um, I thought, how is that, you know, to just, I guess, to be so lean, you know, the physics behind it is to be super lean, to have a straightness of your body, you know, where you don't have bulking shoulders or wide hips, you know, you're just straight and then that fast, quick rotation. Um, but it is, you know, the physics behind it is truly amazing. And when you can combine that with artistry um, mm-hmm. and speed, it's it's fabulous you know to watch um but it is um i think it's disconcerting for for some of the people that are struggling at 17 and 18 trying to perfect a triple axle or trying to get that first quad 
you know, because we've got great skaters in their 20s that still haven't really put out a quad that are still competitive. Yes. Yet they're competing with people that have all five quads, you know, so right. it's scary. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. There's always a switch. You know, there's always, um, remember when Jeff Buttle won Worlds? And yes. in something, he won Worlds without something and someone said this will be the last time somebody oh he didn't have a quad and it was the same year adam the first year adam won junior worlds he didn't have a triple axel the mm -hmm. next year he had triple axel in all his programs but um that that's how it was changing at junior worlds you didn't need a triple axel and then mm -hmm. it changed that all of a sudden then they were doing quads in the in the free yeah yes so mm -hmm. the, the technical demands are high they are high. And, and I think with the young women, what I see is when your body is a certain way, right. it's easier, like you said, to do the quads. And so these young women have success. These Russian women have success, maybe win world championships or junior worlds. And then they go through puberty. And suddenly, I, I you know, from my degree, I think about the psychological toll that that takes, mm -hmm. because then you're trying to manipulate your body to regain that success. And particularly if you're raised in a culture where, or you have adults around you who say, well, you're only as good as the last competition and how you do at that competition. And now you're struggling just to get the technical content back that hit that it takes on your self-esteem. And, and we've seen that from some of these Russian women who then go on to treatment for eating disorders because they're left feeling, I need to manipulate my body or change its natural shape in order to have that success and to feel good about myself. Well, you and I have something in common because we were both dancers mm -hmm. and I loved hearing about um, your early training in dance yes. and you were a competitive gymnast. Is, is that right? Yes, very briefly. Yeah. And then I thought that is way, it was not a great culture. And I didn't like the coaches would yell at you and it was just not for me. So. And you didn't find them to yell at you at skating? I think for whatever reason, I got lucky with the coaches that I had early on. Later on, mm -hmm. there was mm -hmm. a bit more of that going on with some of the coaches mm -hmm. with whom I trained. But I, there was a sense when I was a kid, uh, eight or nine years old, I just remember my gymnastics coach screaming at me because I was afraid to try something because I was afraid I was going to fall on my head. Yeah. And the idea that, well, I'm scared. Why would mm -hmm. they yell at me for being scared? I couldn't yeah. understand that. And yeah. thankfully... My mom picked up on that and said, we're out of here. Yeah. I had one, one of my daughters was a gymnast and it is a different mm -hmm. dynamic because it's so chaotic. There's so many uh, things mm -hmm. going on at once that the volume, like you said, yeah. there is more yelling, even if mm -hmm. it's just to get people corralled into line or mm -hmm. whatever, versus mm -hmm. on the ice, you know, you, there's more eye to eye, you know, content, mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Silence, yeah. Yeah, I have been watching this show called Baby Ballroom. Did you ever hear of it? it no, I haven't. Had it's competitive ballroom dance for people that are like as young as six years old. Oh wow! And I, because of the Trophy Life, because of this podcast, mm -hmm. I started really becoming more aware and more interested in the effects of um, competitive exposure at young ages, and some kids really develop great habits. I mean, there are, everyone can, but but sometimes people encounter, you know, a sensitivity. 
And you were talking <laughs> about, um, tell me the difference between an eating disorder and disordered <laughs> eating, because there is a difference. So um, explain that as a clinician for us. Yeah, so I really see it on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, disordered eating, many diets that were sold are actually disordered eating. Yeah. So if we think about it, a completely quote unquote healthy, you know, healthy, mindful approach to eating is when I'm hungry, I eat what I want. I give my body what it needs. I have, I eat a wide range of foods. There's no good foods, bad foods, anything like that. If I have a sensitivity, I stay away from those foods, but food is food. It's fuel. And it's something that brings me enjoyment in my life. So many diets, what happens is we start to venture into disordered eating and that's, you can only eat, there's rules. You can only eat these foods, that foods at this time, that time of day, good or bad foods. And there's a lot of guilt and shame that can come along with the diet mentality and eating. And what I see in skating with some of the, the clients with whom I work is the culture Mm -hmm. is one in which there's a lot of just disordered eating and disordered eating beliefs. So if an individual is susceptible to that, an eating disorder potentially at a certain point in their life, and they're given these beliefs that they're in their environment where talking about, oh, I didn't eat breakfast, or I mm -hmm. lost three pounds yesterday, and a coach applauds that, or they hear this yeah. chatter, sometimes that can then lend itself to disordered eating where we see behaviors like bulimia, exercise bulimia, anorexia, where it becomes more of a diagnosable disorder. Mm -hmm. Especially when we start um, contributing some sort of eating habit or style or omission to success. And yes. I think Adam yeah. even shares that in his book. He says something about um, knowing that he was super light um, and eating like a cucumber, which is, I mean, how could someone, when you need to expend 3000 calories minimally a day, yeah. eating a cucumber and a couple of apples, that's not really going to sustain you. Um, but, uh, I think in, when I, he was shocked cause I told him that when I started dancing in a company, they gave you a list and it was a 500 calorie diet and how to maintain Wow. It. Yeah, I know. It was back in the days where women couldn't vote. No, I wasn't that old. But I mean, it was it. They were just super aggressive. And every Monday, we got on the scale and the stage in front of everyone. And you're you were so nervous to see if the thing went from 50 to 100. You wanted the main weight to stay at 50. So it would be, you know, under 100 pounds, it would under 100. Yeah. And then like you would get super harassed by some of the men in the company be if you were like in that 104 range or 105 range. Um, you know, I mean, it was the culture. And mm -hmm. it's hard to think that that, um, that was even acceptable, you know? So um, that is something that I have always tried to work on. And I've even said to my kids, like, I would give myself an A in most things about parenting, but my self-talk and what I've allowed them to overhear me say about my own relationship with food is, mm -hmm. it isn't optimal. You know, there, there are probably better parents that have expressed better nutrition habits. I mean, I say them, but mm -hmm. parents can say whatever they want. It's yes. what they do that their kids imitate. Yes. yes. And kids, yeah they pick up on everything. Yes, Kids are so perceptive. And often this 
skaters and other athletes that I work with who do struggle with body image issues and disordered eating, they'll say something and I'll ask them, whose voice is that? That's not yours. Who told you that? Or where do you remember hearing that? And most of the time it's, well, my mom says that or my dad. And it usually comes up, the parent is not at all intending to, mm-hmm. you know, put this on the child or isn't even aware of mm-hmm. how a child, well, my mom doesn't eat carbs. Mm-hmm. And she made a comment that, well, now it's Christmas, I'm going to gain 15 pounds. And the child takes mm-hmm. on the parents. It's really what's behind that is right. my mom's afraid. So now right. I should be afraid at this time of right. year too. And I should be afraid of these certain foods or mm-hmm. a coach says something. Mm-hmm. And the kid, because Again, they're like sponges and they're just mm-hmm. going to take in everything that we say or do. Mm-hmm. Um, you, so you know I say that I'll say like, I, this is not, you know, I'm not the best example. And n- now that my daughters are adults, they'll say to me, like, this is your issue, not my issue. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm wearing this scarf as a shirt, you know, <laughs> like I'm good <laughs> with this. Like, this is your issue. Yeah. And, um, and they're right. You know, they're yeah. right. And I just, I, I, I was super honest about that through my parenting about how, you know, this is, this is something that I am aware of that I, you know, I keep making mistakes with what I say, you know, I'll say something like, um, you know, I just eat just I shouldn't be eating this or something <laughs> like that really shouldn't be expressed. That should be, you know, done. It should be mm-hmm. behavior. It shouldn't be like wishful thinking, you know, mm-hmm. expressed in words. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So. And, and one of the things that it sounds like you've done that mm-hmm. is the best thing parents could do is just say, hey, this is my issue. And right. to own that I'm not perfect either. Yeah. And yeah. How, that really gives the child yeah. permission yeah. to say, oh, I'm not going to put my parents on a pedestal. Right. I can see that they're struggling. How do they approach these, right. any sort of challenges? Because everything that we're doing, we're teaching kids how to yeah. talk to themselves, think about themselves. So it's not to be perfect or to not have right. any sort of your own stuff that you're working right. through, but it's letting the child and to say, this is not your problem. This is mine. And this is what I'm doing. And let's talk about it. And I'll say, I, I would say to them, this is why it's so important. And I share this with other parents that I have been working on, on just self-talk my entire mm-hmm. life. If kids had started this way, because my kids, for the most part, you know, every day is a new adventure, but they are, you know, they have a strong self-actualization process Mm -hmm. they are all identify with who they are in their own skin they love what they're doing they're engaged in jobs or passions that they love and Mm -hmm. they're super aware of their self-talk and that is something because i saw how my self-talk caught up with me Mm. i was super aware of that and that was one thing that i truly tried to bring awareness and mindfulness to them about Mm -hmm. so it wasn't like oh, mommy has this problem, I would just say, now that isn't constructive. I shouldn't have said that. And I would correct mm-hmm. myself out loud in front of them mm-hmm. instead of like, you know, I'm so vulnerable. Like, because mm-hmm. you want your kids not to put yeah. you on a pedestal, but you want the pilot of the plane to not second guess himself, right? right. You don't want right. the pilot of the plane to say, hey, what was that noise? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, I would be sitting in the seat thinking like, he doesn't know what that noise is. <laughs> Like, he, we're going to crash. So, right. I mean, to maintain that coolness, but to mm-hmm. to be very um, honest about your corrections 
and that you're you've oh that noise is a flap i it's up now we're fine you know mm -hmm. like that kind of correction yeah so, you're modeling it for that. yeah so what when you are working with someone what what is your how do you know someone has reached a goal how do they share that with you like that fist pump what what is <laughs> how do they yes so it's a lot of um, constant checking in so that we're constantly every session, we've had an identified goal and we're just discussing, where do you think you are on a scale of one to 10? Okay, mm -hmm. if that's a six, what would a seven look like? Mm -hmm. Why are you a six and not a five? So it's mm -hmm. using some of that motivational interviewing to help them really start to gauge. And I would say 95% of the time, they come to me and say, I've done it. I'm good. So it's that. And that's how I know that I've done my job is that I'm not the one who's saying, oh, you accomplished it. You, you know, graduated from whether it's therapy or coaching go off and but they say, ah, I'm good. I think I'm, you know, if I need something, I'll come back to you. And that's right. when I know they've got it. Right. So you're, you're not changing behaviors. You're strengthening, strengthening their tools so they can change their behaviors. Exactly. Yeah. And it's really, my goal is always, you have everything you need to accomplish whatever goal that is. If there's a tool that I think can help you, I'm going to offer that up. But really, I see my role as I'm guiding you. So you're driving the car, I have maybe a roadmap. So if we're going down the wrong road, or I may have the directions to where we need to go. But ultimately, you're the one who's going to do mm -hmm. everything and knows what you need. Well, some of the people that I've talked to, I've asked them who was a mentor or um, because sometimes it's a parent, sometimes it's a coach, sometimes it's just a person that sat next to you on the plane that happened to sh have a moment with. Because so, sometimes we have like momentary relationships, we have seasonal relationships, and we have lifelong relationships. So can you share one that really made an impact in the way that your course um, of your life has turned? I would say that's probably my older sister. Mm -hmm. So my mom passed away when I was 17 and my sister was 21. And my dad, he's very successful in his career, but was never really involved in mm -hmm. our lives as kids growing up. And my sister left college, moved to Michigan with me, traveled to every single competition. She really took that spot that my mom had held in terms of my skating career. And then after a couple of years, I felt guilty that she was putting her life on hold to really take that mom role. And so she went back to college, but she's been that person that no matter what has happened in my life or no matter what I mean, she's helped me. And she's given me that insight of what she's learned through her life and has just been that constant and, and that unconditional love. Yeah. So by her loving me that way, it really helped me during any of the challenges that I had to see, oh, this is how she modeled for me, yeah. how you love another person. And that helped me to do that for myself. That's amazing. Because before, you know, I watched some of your old programs. And I think there was <laughs> you were at a world championship in Germany. Uh -huh. and they showed her Peggy Fleming gave mm -hmm. a little sidebar about this is her older sister and she travels with her and she's her constant, you know, mentor and yeah. supporter. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because so often you would think that I hear, thank goodness, my children really <laughs> respect each other. And I never like said, um, we're going to Brady soccer game. Like we're all mm -hmm. going to, you, you're forced to root for him. Or we're mm -hmm. all going to watch your sister at gymnastics. Or we're all going to watch Adam go skate. It was, we never did that. If they mm -hmm. wanted to go, mm -hmm. they would go. 
And by the time they were all going to high school and graduation, and they were graduating, they were upset because they the schools usually will only give you so many tickets because the arenas or whatever are smaller and usually families only get like six tickets or whatever and i have six kids so um they would be like no i really want to go no i really want to go so they were like so it's nice to have that camaraderie versus the sibling yes. rivalry and so many families i see them pit pitted against each other and compared and the 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 way that I saw your sister up in the stands, like really feeling that, that I think it was a Lutz or something that you missed, mm -hmm. misstepped. And I could feel like the, the and then that, mm -hmm. like she was just going to repair everything. Like I just mm -hmm. saw that on her face. Mm -hmm. And then it's just so, um, such a beautiful thing that, um, you know, your mom had to have had her hands in that where she, your sister didn't envy your, because you know you were on television and mm -hmm. this national spotlight and lots of attention, I'm sure. And um, that's the public thing because yeah. people don't understand like behind the scenes, you know, sometimes the, my other children have their own Olympics. Yes. But it's yeah. just not on TV. No. So they all have their own achievements that, you know, and I think sometimes when you, when you have to, pr things are more private, you have that internal satisfaction, it's easier to connect to. Whereas when you are more of a public figure, you get so much attention, that it's hard to get that quiet time, yes. you know, with yourself. So I just applaud your family, especially your mom and your sister for creating that opportunity for your sister to really move into the role as not just a sister, but a super decent person. Because yes. Yeah. She's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, she's in your Instagram, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. With her boys. Right. So I see. Yeah. Like, yeah they're adorable. And I don't yeah. see her in your Instagram, but I see her yeah. kids. And um, yeah, uh, the whole dynamic is mm -hmm. just, it's uplifting for me. And I mean, that might be weird. Um, <clears throat> but I really love to see the, the work the end work of families no. and how families are created. And I just love to see brothers and sisters that get along oh. that support each other. I think it's just wonderful. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think what's like you said, that public, you know, when you're in the public versus somebody who has those private victories, I think that's what she offered that has been just, I don't even know if she knows this, but been so helpful is after I retired from skating, like so many skaters, I had no idea what do I do now? And who am I? And so much of my identity was tied to skating and to see how fulfilled she felt in her life. And that you don't need to be in the public. Do any of that? I think sometimes too in the skating culture, you go for the success and for people to know who you are. And that's going to give you that sense of security and it's going to make you happy. And to see somebody who is so happy and content with her life. Mm -hmm. And it was because of all of those intrinsic accomplishments and what she was doing for herself, not what she was doing and how it would look to anybody else. That was a great lesson she taught me. Yeah. Well, to wrap this up, all of those trophies that you have collected and all of those awards and, um, four continents, ISU championships. Um, where are all of those 
are they are they proudly like in the middle of your home right now where people are in awe when they walk in or are they stacked somewhere in a box where where, where are they <laughs> honestly i don't know i know that the junior world medal mm -hmm. that I won, I buried that with my mom because I felt like that was as much her victory as it was anything that had to do with the work that I put in. And then everything else, I, I don't know if it's all of the moves or different storage units, but I I don't know where any of them are. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't think about them. So it's not That's something true. where I'm hoping that I'll stumble upon the medal at some point. And, you know, the funniest thing is that you've had this world experience where you've traveled to, you know, five continents to, mm -hmm. um, you know, to uh, skate. And one of the greatest uh, teachers has been your sister who has given you, you, you've actually earned the gift of love that she has given you mm -hmm. because of, you know, your receptiveness. Because I, I think that there could have been a lot of 17, 18 year old kids that would have said, I can do this or been resentful mm -hmm. with because you're so caught up in your own pain. And yeah. yeah, and there was just something about the way she gave you attention that you were willing to accept it. So and, and I don't want to I was resentful at our time yeah. I was, why is she here? And I want to go off. But I, I think testament to her and just no matter what I was going through and what I was trying to figure out on my own, she was so constant with checking in and giving me any love and resources that she could. So she's phenomenal. Yeah. So she taught you that intrinsic satisfaction to not look, you know, at the, at the standings yeah. to see where you rank that day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to wrap it up. One last thought. Where do you see yourself in five years? Hopefully doing exactly what I'm doing now. I And that's a great thing to say that, you know, skating and after a decade of trying to figure out what do I want to do after skating and what's next? I'm trying to, I would love to continue working with clients here in Idaho and also athletes online. And I think with technology, I mean, we're just, that is such a benefit to the work that I'm doing that I can connect with skaters and athletes and people all around the world. So I'm loving what I'm doing. How about you, Kelly? Where do you see yourself? In five years? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, I hope I have a second book because I hope I have a second book because I, I am fascinated with the idea of belongingness, mm. of getting comfortable in your own skin. And um, I love talking about this, you know, the, how competition or the effects of those high, highly stressful situations when you're young, how they affect you later in life. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they, they fracture you and sometimes mm -hmm. they strengthen you, you know, because yeah. I have, you know, sometimes people walk away still wounded, you know, mm -hmm. from um, the way they perceived the experience. And, it, and it's people like you that can connect with them that can reframe that experience so yeah. that they can see it a different way and sift out, you know, some of those positive components. But thank you for asking. No one has cared. But I, I think oh. I'll probably you'll probably know because we follow each other on Instagram. So, you know, I'll be posting. So follow along. Yes, I'll, I'll get to follow it. Yes. Maybe, yeah. you know, the, I live in a town that's like a Hallmark movie town. Um, but, you know, 
who knows, you know, that frustrated, that frustrated uh, executive from New York will maybe come to like <laughs> come down into Christmas your, yeah. town and we'll like hate each other and then we'll fall in love with each other. Who knows? Yes, and learn lessons and all of that. that <laughs> well, it's been so much fun being with you today. Oh, thank, thank you, you for today. having me. Yes, yes. It's a trophy life and stay in touch. I'll see you on Instagram. All right, Kelly, I will see you there. For more information on what influenced my trophy life, check out my new book, Parent Up, Inspire Your Child to Be Their Best Self, available at all of your favorite bookstores. As always, you can find me on Instagram at krippon. For questions and comments and more information, check out my website, kellyrippon.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.